0: going to be a little bit different of a start than normal. Um, we're, if this is your first time joining us, we've been in a series through the book of Revelation. And as I was preparing this week, I just went back and, and read Revelation 1, verse 3. Let me just read you what it says. It says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John the author of revelation tells us from the beginning of the book that a blessing comes with reading this book aloud and hearing it so before we even begin to teach it or unpack it or try and understand it uh, i just want us to take john's words seriously that there is blessing found in reading it and hearing it and doing what it says okay so i just want to invite you we're going to we're going to take a few minutes and we're going to read Revelation chapter 6 and 7 which is what we're studying tonight. It's going to take us a few minutes to get through it. I just want to invite you if you want to close your eyes and try and envision this you can. If you want to follow along on the screen you can. I've asked the band to provide kind of a soundtrack just so it's a little bit more exciting as uh, we read. Uh, But let's take a moment and let's just read these two chapters together. Let's hear it. Let's read it and hear it before we study it. it. says this. Chapter 6. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal... I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat, for a denarius and 3 quarts of barley for a denarius and do not hor- do not harm the oil and wine when he opened the fourth seal i heard the voice of the fourth living creature say come and i looked and behold a pale horse and its rider's name was death and hades followed him and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves. And among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending, from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, a hundred and forty-four thousand sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Twelve thousand from the tribe of Judah were sealed, twelve thousand. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Nephtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Jesus, before we even begin to try and understand this text, we just affirm that it is good. And we affirm that it is from you. And so, God, as we look at a really complicated text, I pray, God, for every person in here, that I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear tonight, Lord God. That you would speak to us, that you would use this time. You draw us in closer to you, God. We love you. We need you. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Well, so glad you guys are here tonight. This is um, this is an interesting text tonight because uh, if you've been journeying with us in the Book of Revelation uh, so far, it's been fairly straightforward for Revelation. Okay, we started out with Chapter One, and we saw this amazing picture of Jesus Christ and then we moved into chapters two and three where Jesus wrote seven different letters to seven different churches and those letters could really be applied to us today and then we stepped into chapters four and five and we saw this beautiful picture of the throne room of God and then we come to chapter six and chapter six is where all of the controversy begins with revelation and I I just want to be really clear Uh, on where all of the controversy lies, you need to know we could literally spend hours, not just tonight, but for the next several Mondays, we could take hours for the next probably three or four Monday nights, just unpacking uh, the different debates that come out of chapter six and seven. Um, we could spend all of our time really analyzing the debates that center around who, when, and what. Let me just unpack some of these for you so you know kind of what, what, what happens here. First, uh, the question of who. A lot of people are trying to figure out who when it comes to chapter 6. Uh, there are plenty of godly men and women who would say that by this point in the book of Revelation, the church, the people of God, have already been raptured up. And taken to heaven. And uh, so if you were kind of into the left behind series, maybe you hear that and you're like, yeah, that makes sense. I'm with the rapture. So that's you. Okay. There's a lot of people who would fall into that camp. And then there's other people who would say, no, no, no. I, I don't believe that the rapture happens uh, at this specific point. And so the church is still involved in this text. Okay. So that's one area of debate. Another one. Um, Comes in the in chapter seven. In chapter seven, we just saw the sealing of the hundred and forty four thousand from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And this group of people is an interesting one, and debate revolves around this group of people as well. Because some people say that these hundred and forty four thousand people were referred to literally a hundred. And 44,000 Jews. Other people would say, no, it's not a literal 144,000, but it refers to a massive group of Jews that will be saved. Okay? Other people see those 144,000 as symbolic of the church because they would say that the church is actually the true Israel. And the church has replaced Israel. So there's debate there. And then if you uh, look at the latter half of chapter 7, well, the first half you have the 144,000. And then the second half, you have this multitude of people surrounding the throne. And so uh, there's, there's debate. Some people would say that the 144,000 and then the multitude are actually the same group of people from different perspectives. Okay, Other people would say that they're, they're different groups of people. And then there's debate just about the multitude at the second half of chapter 7. Where some people would say that these people, clothed in white garments, refer to all Christians of all times. Other people would say it's a reference to Christians who have just gone through the great tribulation. And then other people would say that these people, the great multitude, just refer to people who were martyred for their faith. So we could literally spend all night just processing the who. Who is even involved In chapters 6 and 7, we could also spend the entire night processing through the question of when. When does chapter 6 in particular take place? Because according to some godly men and women, Revelation chapter 6 all the way to Revelation chapter 19 is describing a specific seven-year period of tribulation that occurs in between the rapture and then a thousand-year millennial reign in chapter 20. Others believe that this isn't describing a literal seven-year period. They would say that it's describing a a period of time where there is an intensification of evil before the end of history. And then other people would say that this is actually, chapter 6 is a description of history, between the first and second coming of Christ. So really the church age. So from the time that Jesus showed up and and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven until the time when he comes back, chapter 6, some people would say describes all of that. So we could literally spend hours unpacking the when. And then third, we could spend all night trying to answer the question of what? What do the images in chapter 6 represent? Let me just give you an example. Look at chapter 6, verse 2. Look at what it says. It says this. It says, And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So, uh, interestingly enough, there is tons of debate about who this white horse and this rider is. So some people look at Revelation chapter 19, where Jesus shows up on a white horse, and they would say, because Jesus shows up on a white horse in Revelation 19, then the rider on the white horse in Revelation chapter 6 is Jesus, okay? There's only a few problems. Uh, Number one, it doesn't really fit the context, and, and Jesus in Revelation 19 has a sword and many crowns. This rider only has one crown and a bow, and so it's not that simple, but some people would say it's Jesus, and then some people would go to the opposite side of the spectrum and say, this isn't Christ, this is the Antichrist, okay? So get that. You have one image, and some people are saying it's Christ, and some people are saying it's the Antichrist, okay? You can't get more polar opposite than that, okay? That's a problem. Then some people would say it's not Christ or the Antichrist. It's actually symbolic of this Uh, lust in humanity to conquer. So it's not symbolic of a person as much as it is symbolic of the depravity of humanity. We could spend all night trying to hash out the who, the when, and the what. So let me just tell you this. As I was preparing this week, um, I was sitting at my desk, and I just paused and I looked around to see what materials I had in front of me. And surrounding me, this week, I had seven different books and commentaries on Revelation. Okay, Some of them, 800 pages or more. Okay, I also had two Bibles with me, and then I listened to three different sermons online of different people teaching this text. And all throughout this week and even today, I wanted to put my head through a wall. All right? no doubt, because um, you can pick up a commentary and read it and be like, this is it. This is what it means. And then you put it down, you pick up another one, you're like, wait, 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 that wasn't it. This is it. And then you put that down, and then you grab another one. It's like, well, scrap those two. This is clearly it. And you can just go round and round and round and want to put your head through a wall. So the reason this book can be frustrating is that there is very valid arguments for very different explanations and interpretations. So let me say two things before we just start unpacking the text. Number 1, okay? It is a good thing to study eschatology, the study of the last times. And specifically, it is good for us to study Revelation. And it is a good thing to study Revelation so thoroughly that you develop strong convictions about a certain interpretation. But you must always, you always have to temper your convictions with a humility where you're able to say, I could be wrong." Because God has not spelled it out for us. And there's a reason why there has been debate. Not just for a few years, but really hundreds of years about this text. That's the first thing. Number two, you have to remember, back to the first night of the series, this book starts out by saying it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we talked about that word revelation, meaning the unveiling. It's the unveiling of Jesus. Jesus Christ. So what that tells us is this book doesn't exist to conceal. It exists to reveal. Okay, Jesus has given us this book because he wants us to see certain things crystal clearly. So my encouragement to you is you go out and you study this book. And as we read it tonight, let's major on the things that are crystal clear. And let's minor on the things that that are not. Okay, major on the things that are crystal clear, minor on the things that are not. So let me just tell you, uh, here's what I'm going to do. Um, I'm going to give you four different things from these two chapters that I believe Jesus makes crystal clear to us. And along the way, I'm going to share my, some of my imp- interpretation. Okay, and I am totally okay with you disagreeing with my interpretation. And we have to be okay with each other disagreeing on revelation because understanding revelation or how things are going to play out in the end times has to be a non-essential for us. And the reason I say that is because we cannot say with certainty how things are going to play out. We do have to have unity when it comes to certain essentials like the deity of Christ, the depravity of man, salvation by grace. Through faith, okay, the the trustworthiness and the sufficiency of the Scripture, these are things that we all have to be unified on. But when it comes to the non-essentials, there needs to be liberty. There needs to be understanding. So I don't need you to agree with my interpretation tonight. What I need you to agree with me on are the things that Jesus makes crystal clear for us to see in the text. Okay? Okay? So here we go. Here's the first thing that these two chapters, specifically chapter six, here's the first thing we see, okay? This world isn't moving toward order. It's moving towards chaos. That's the first thing we see. This world is not moving towards order. It is moving toward chaos. This is my conviction. This is my interpretation. I do believe that the seals in chapter six are referring to, to future events, a future time of judgment that will um, that will be signs that the end is coming close. Now, I cannot say with confidence, I cannot say with confidence that there is a rapture and then a seven-year tribulation period and then a thousand-year reign. I can't go that far. And that's interesting because I grew up in a church where I was surrounded by people who taught the rapture. I went to a seminary that it was kind of their They were the people waving the rapture flag. But as I've studied, it is just not that clear. So if you grew up in a church where the pastor is like, there's going to be a rapture. Believers are going to be gone. You just need to be clear. Like the word rapture isn't even used in the Bible. All right. So I would encourage you go do some further studying. The the Bible does talk about a catching up of the believer, of the believers with Jesus in the sky. But how that all fleshes out is not as clear as some people make it out to be. I'm not saying that the rapture doesn't exist. I do believe that there is a catching up, but it's a matter of timing. So I encourage you, go study it more. I'm not there yet. I've still got more study to do on that. But I do believe that these seals refer to a future time of judgment. And what this judgment really looks like is is not as much about what God is going to do, it's more about what God is not going to do. So what we need to understand is one form of God's judgment is Him removing His hands of protection from humanity. It is God removing His restraint on evil. And we see this in Romans chapter 1, where He talks about giving people over, to their lustful passions and giving people over to a depraved mind. This is God executing judgment. And it's not as much about what God does. It's more about what he doesn't do. And so I believe that there'll be a future time of judgment where God kind of withholds his restraint on evil. And so what's going to happen is that there's going to be kind of a downward spiral of humanity. And so we kind of see this progression through the first four seals, which are these four horses and their riders are known as the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And so if you think about it, if you think about the, the, the progression, it starts with the first rider who symbolizes this lust for conquest. You think about what happens in humanity when there's a desire for significance in the soul. And I would imagine that many people here tonight, if you were to just kind of dive in deep to your soul, you would see there's a, there's a longing for significance, there's a hunger to feel powerful, to feel like you matter. And there, there might come a time in the future, there might come a time where God kind of removes his restraint and this lust for conquest is magnified throughout throughout the world. And what happens when there's a lust for conquest is that it breeds war. And that's where the second horse comes in, because the second horse comes in and brings, it's the red horse, and it brings war and bloodshed. That flows out of a lust for conquest. And what happens when there's war and there's bloodshed? Well, if you think about it, um, different um, commercial lines get... get. Um, destroyed lands and crops get devastated. And what happens is there is scarcity and that scarcity leads to famine. And that's where the third horse comes in. And that's the black horse. And if you think about how these things all play out, where there's a lust for conquest, war and bloodshed, famine, the end result is death. That's where the fourth horse comes in, the pale horse. It brings death. What we see is this downward spiral of humanity where God basically removes his restraint and he allows more lust for conquest, which breeds more war, which breeds more famine, which breeds more death. And I believe that 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 will happen in the future. But here's the thing. Some people would interpret this text and say this isn't this isn't just talking about something in the future this is actually talking about um, history it, all throughout history from Jesus's first coming to his second coming and i think that there's a lot of validity to that that we see these horses kind of we at least catch a glimpse of them now i mean the the first century christians caught a glimpse of them then and we catch a glimpse glimpse of them now because in our world today, there's a lust for conquest and war and famine and death. And we see that. We can look out and see this world is not moving towards order. It is moving toward chaos. I think one of the best things we can realize is that this, this, this has something for us here. Okay, we can all look out into the world and agree that this world is broken and busted. It is. But the thing that we have to realize is that this world is not broken and busted because of something outside of us that is broken and busted. This world isn't broken and busted because of someone or something out there. No, this world is broken and busted because it is full of broken and busted people. More specifically, this world is broken and busted, and not everything is as it should be because we are are broken and busted. And just as um, this world currently is unraveling and is in a downward spiral of depravity, and just as it will be one day, the same is true for each one of us, apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, we see from these seals that the, that the outcome of sin is death. And Proverbs puts it this way, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. This is the life cycle of sin. Every single one of us lives in a downward spiral where we believe that we have found life in the different things of the world. And in the end, we don't find life. We find death and destruction. Okay? This is the first thing that we we see from the text is that this world isn't moving towards order. It's moving from chaos. Here's the second thing we see. The second thing we see in this passage is that Jesus is in control of the chaos in the world. Jesus is in control of the chaos in the world. I don't know if you saw, but there's kind of a sequence to the first four seals. It starts with Jesus opening the seal. And then after Jesus opens the seal, then one of the four living creatures says, come. And after one of the four living creatures says, come, then the horses ride. So it's very important to see if Jesus doesn't open the seal, then the, one of the four living creatures doesn't say, come. And If one of the four living creatures doesn't say, come, then evil does not happen in the world. Okay, Jesus is the one who controls how things play out. In this world. I mean just look at the wording. Look at, look at verse 2 again. Look at what it says. It says, And I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow. And a crown was given to him. Something was given to him. Look at verse 4. It says this. It says, And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. So the first one was given something. The second one um, was permitted to do something. Look at verse 8. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider was death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence. So what you see is Jesus is the one who gives authority and permission to these agents of chaos to accomplish their tasks. And without Jesus' permission, they are not able to do anything. What this means is that Satan and his agents of evil in this world are not allowed, they are not able to do anything without Jesus giving them permission or authority. Because Jesus is in control, and he's in control of the chaos. And we, we can hear that, and we could say, there's something that sounds wrong about that. And we can say that produces skepticism in me about Jesus' goodness. Now what you have to realize is that this world is broken and busted because we are broken and busted. And what we want Jesus to do is restrain all the evil in the world and do away with all the evil in the world. But if Jesus does away with all the evil in the world, he might start with us. So this world is not going to be as it should be until Jesus comes back. So we can't expect evil in this world. This shouldn't drive us to skepticism. It could drive it should drive us to comfort. Because if you think about it, we have an enemy whose main objective is to steal, kill, and destroy. But if you look at the fourth seal, it says that Jesus gave them authority to kill a fourth of the earth. Well, we can say, man, that's pretty significant. And that's right, a fourth of the population of humanity is pretty significant, but it's not nearly as significant as three-fourths of the earth. And so what we see here is in the midst of God's judgment, we see his mercy, and we see him restraining evil. The fact that Jesus controls, is in charge of, and is sovereign over evil should bring us a lot of comfort. And it should cause us to think about all of the different times in life where Jesus restrains evil. Anytime a plane crashes, we say, God, why would you let this happen? But we never pause to say thank you for all of the flights that take off and land safely every single day. It's because of Jesus' kindness restraining evil because he is in charge. He's, he's, uh, He's in control of all evil. Uh, This past week, uh, my wife and I really had a rough week for us. Uh, My wife, uh, we found out a month ago that my wife is pregnant, was pregnant, and um, went in three weeks ago and saw the baby, saw the heartbeat. And then we went in last Tuesday, and I walked in the door, and the doctor said, I'm sorry, guys, I can't find a heartbeat. And we found out really bad news that my wife, uh, that we had lost the baby. And uh, talk about a moment where it's just easy because, man, we're in a small group of church where everyone in the group, almost everyone in the group is pregnant. And so you begin to look around, you see different people's baby bumps, and you begin to say, man, God, why? Why would you let this happen? But in the process of talking to the doctor, the doctor begins to tell us, man, this is pretty common. And what you need to realize is that one out of five pregnancies goes bad. And the doctor is saying it's kind of a wonder That there's so many healthy babies. And so I begin to think, man, we hear all the time about people who have miscarriages. And yet we have two healthy boys with whom we had flawless pregnancies. That's the grace of God. That's God's restraint of evil. Because if there's anything that the evil one would love to corrupt, it's it's the joy of life and corrupting it by bringing death. And so we see that Jesus Christ is in control of the chaos. And we, we see this further magnified in the fifth seal. Look again at the fifth seal. Verses 9 through 11, it says this. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves have Ben, this is very interesting because what we see is no longer we, we move from the earth, we move to heaven. And in heaven now we see uh, martyrs for their faith. People have been killed for their, um, for their stance on Jesus. And Jesus isn't surprised that they've been killed for their faith. He's not surprised at all because it is actually God's will that many would suffer and even be martyred for his sake. Why? Well, because we live in a world that is hostile toward the gospel. And if the gospel, if people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation are going to hear the gospel, it will come through persecution and even sacrifice. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So Jesus isn't surprised by the fact that these martyrs have been killed. But here's the cool thing. Here's what we find out is that Jesus has actually already determined the number of people who will die for their faith. So he still has complete control. God isn't sitting there saying, oh my gosh, man, I turned away. Um, I turned away from ISIS for a second and they got some more. Man, I didn't see that. And then, you know what? There's people over in Africa and man, I just totally missed that. Dang it. I mean, there's just so much going on right now. And angels, it would really be nice if you could help out because this is kind of a busy time in the world. No, God is very clear that he already knows the exact number of people who will be martyred for for their faith, and it will not be one more than that because he has complete control of the chaos. It's interesting what the martyrs say. They're on the other side of eternity, which means they see God, they see Jesus for who he is, and they're not up in heaven kind of in Jesus' ears saying, dude, what happened down there? Like, what happened? And I was telling people about you. And then I died. Like, where were you? Why didn't you show up? We don't see that at all. What do we see them saying? We see them crying out, oh, sovereign Lord. That word, that sovereign Lord, it's the Greek word, which means a supreme ruler. So even the people who got killed for their faith, they're like, yeah, we know you're in control. Like, we know that you are in complete control of the chaos. Our question isn't, why did you let this happen? Our question is, when are you going to do something about it? Because we know you're going to do something about it. We're just wondering if you could clue us in on when that's going to be. And that leads us to the third point. Jesus will do something. He will. I think our tendency is to look at the chaos in the world and our tendency is to ask the question, God, why didn't you do something? Maybe there's some hurt and pain in your life. Maybe something went terribly wrong and you have asked God that question. God, why didn't you do something? In Revelation chapter 6, specifically the sixth seal tells us very clearly Jesus will do something. And there's nothing he's missed. There's no injustice. There's no evil that he will leave unsettled. He will do something. Look at this sobering text again. Verse 12. This is extremely sobering. Don't miss it. It says this. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale the sky vanished like a scroll and it being it that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their their wrath has come and who can stand? This is an extremely sobering text and it pictures the end of history. It pictures a moment in time where Jesus comes and devastates the world. Just try and Picture what it's saying. It's saying the sky is rolled up like a scroll. Can you imagine the heavens just being rolled up like a scroll? The sun and the moon going, going black. You see stars falling out of their place in the sky. You see mountains being thrown into the ocean. And this is a, this is a very vivid picture of the end where, where a few things happen A few things happen. Number one, all that man worships is demolished. All that man worships is demolished. Romans 1 tells us that the essence of sin, the essence of sin is that man trades the creator for the creation. Man trades the creator for the creation. And man worships what's been made. So Jesus comes. And demolishes creation saying, I refuse to give my glory to another. I refuse to give my glory to another. All that man worships is demolished. Number two, all that man achieves is brought to nothing. Did you see the list? It says that there's, there's kings and there's, there's the rich. It, it, and then it says that there's, there's slave and free and it's saying that they all hid themselves in caves. Can you imagine what it would be like for a king to take shelter in a cave? Because it doesn't matter what his position is anymore. See, we've talked about this before. There's this desire in in society and in our world for the er factor, we, we need to know that we have the er factor over other people. That we're, we're rich, er, pretty, er, funny, er, wealthy, er, smart, er, all of the, those things. We want to know that we have the er factor over other people because we think that there's significance in that. And Jesus says, man, it is nothing before me. I don't give a rip where your diploma is from. I don't care if you have PhD behind your name. It is nothing before the Lord of lords and King of kings. The third thing we see is that any pride that man thinks he will have before God will be stripped away. Any pride that man thinks he has before God will be stripped away. What do we see? We see all pride. Of humanity. Everyone who does not believe in Jesus Christ. We see them running into caves. Crying out to the sky. Asking for the rocks to fall on them and crush them. Because they know. They realize that it would be better to be crushed. Than to stand face to face with Jesus Christ. Like I don't know what you picture standing before Jesus to be like. I, um, I read a book about Lance Armstrong, and uh, Lance Armstrong has spoken out about what he believes, and someone was asking him, he was talking about a time when he was contemplating spiritual things, and uh, looking back, he said this, he said, At the end of the day, if there was indeed some body or presence standing there to judge me, I hoped I would be judged on whether I had lived a true life. That's interesting. Lived a true life, not on whether I believed in a certain book or whether I'd been baptized. If there was indeed a God at the end of my days, I hoped he didn't say, but you were never a Christian, so you're going the other way from heaven. If so, I was going to reply. This is how Lamstrong was looking back saying, I was going to reply to that saying, you know what? You're right. Fine. I'm going the other way. You're right. Fine. No, no, no. That, that, that pride, that arrogance of like, yeah, fine. Yeah. We're on the same page. I agree. No, there's none of that. There's no, well, you know, there's a lot of people going to hell, and so I would imagine we can make the most of it. You do not want to stand face to face with God without a saving relationship in Jesus Christ. You do not. The text is really clear. On that day, who can stand who can stand? It implies a negative response. No one can stand. No one is going to stand before Jesus and be like, well, whoa, 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 let, me, let me just tell you where I've been and what I've done, and I think you're going to be pretty impressed. I know that your kind of deal was that I need to have faith in you, but man, have I told you about my life? There's no There's, no, there's nothing to say. No one can stand before him. A part of, apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus will do something. And the last point we get comes from chapter 7, and it's this. Jesus is better. That's the fourth point that this shows us. Jesus is better. Chapter 6 ends asking the question on that day, who can stand? And then chapter 7 answers that question beautifully. Look at chapter 7, verse 9. 9 and 10, it says this. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And what were they doing? What's that next word? Clearly you're not following along. Okay, great. I'll read it. That's really encouraging. Okay, awesome. (laughs) After this I looked... And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages. And what were they doing? Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Who can stand? Revelation chapter 7, we see this multitude that can't be counted standing before the throne of God. And look at what they're experiencing. Verse 15 says, therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. That service is referring to worship and praise. They're standing, seeing Jesus face to face. We talked about this last week. When you see God, you worship him. That's the only right response to seeing him. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They see God, they are with Him. They get to experience all of his glory. All that he truly is, his goodness, his kindness, his grace, his power, his wisdom, are all in plain sight to be enjoyed. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. Can you imagine that, having the deepest hungers of your soul satisfied? Isn't that what we all want? It says the sun shall never strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd that interesting the lamb will be the shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and god will wipe away every tear from their eyes complete perfect peace now the question is who can stand what shows us there's a multitude standing who are these people Look real quick at verse 13. It says, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these? That's what we want to know. We want to be people who stand. So who are these people standing? Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. That's a good response. If God or an angel asks you, Who are these people? Just tell God, You know what you know. You tell me. Sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Who are these people? They are the ones who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Let me explain it this way. Um, Several years ago, I I was in Israel, and while I was there, my cousin and I, we took a day trip to the Dead Sea, and uh, I don't know if you've know much about the Dead Sea, but it has about nine times, it is about nine times as salty as the ocean. So um, because of its salt content, it, it's really not possible for anything to sustain life in the Dead Sea. That's why it's called the Dead Sea. And at the Dead Sea, if you were to go out there and get in the water and just lay down on the water, you would float. You would just float. You wouldn't have to like, Wade in the water. No, you just float, because that's what dead things do when they're in water, right? They just float to the top. So it's as if the sea knows, like, if you're in me for an extended period of time, you're going to be floating, all right? Because you don't survive in this place for long, And so as we are there at the Dead Sea, you know, what I what I witnessed is that one of the things people really enjoy doing at the Dead Sea is they like to reach down on the floor of the Dead Sea and take the mud and cover their bodies with it. They like to cover their bodies in the mud and then get out of the water and walk up to the showers and shower off because apparently it's therapeutic to the skin. And so my cousin and I were sitting on the sand just looking at these people playing in the water. I mean, they're having a great time laughing with each other. And they're picking up mud and just covering their bodies with the mud. I mean, they wanted to be caked in this stuff. They wanted no skin showing. So their arms completely covered, their bodies completely covered, their face completely covered, head to toe covered in mud. So they're having fun, enjoying their time, and then they realize they decide that it's time for them to go get cleaned off. And so they get out of the water, and my cousin and I were just watching them. They walk up the beach to the showers, and they're just kind of laughing as they go along, and then they get to the shower, kind of not paying attention, and they go, and they pull the cord to the shower, and no water comes out. No water. And so this time Of fun turned into a time of panic because you could just see it on their muddy... I mean, all you could see was their eyes, okay? That's all you could see because you really couldn't see anything else. And you see them switch into panic mode and they just start pulling the string like it didn't work the first time, but the harder and the faster I pull, please water, come on. And the water never came. And it was interesting because the reason they went into panic was because they knew that the only way to get truly clean was with fresh water. They knew that the place that made them dirty couldn't also be the place that got them clean because the salt water would just burn. And it really doesn't do a good job of, of washing them off. And as I thought about that, here's what I realized. I realized that all of humanity loves to splash around In the place that we think leads to life but only leads to death. We love to splash around in the place that we believe leads to life but only leads to death. We love to cake ourselves in the sin of this world thinking that it isn't that big of a deal. That it's fun and satisfying and therapeutic to the soul. And we buy into the lie that we can clean ourselves off whenever we want. The reality though. Is that a day is coming when Jesus will come to judge the earth. And on that day when Jesus comes. The shower of his grace will be shut off. And it will be too late to get cleaned off. And if you have to go before God caked in your sin. You will not stand. And it is impossible for the place that made you dirty to also make you clean. I tell you that because I really desperately want you to know that right now the shower of God's grace is flowing freely. It is flowing freely with the blood of the Lamb. And it is available to anyone who will pull the cord of faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The blood of the lamb is so important because uh, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. What your sin deserves is death. Jesus' blood was shed so that yours wouldn't have to be. Jesus died so that you wouldn't have to die. With his blood, he purchased you. May payment for your sins. doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done. It doesn't matter if you're caked in mud or if you think you just have a few spots of mud here or there. Jesus' blood is so important, and you need it. My hope tonight is that some of you would realize, maybe for the first time, that Jesus Christ is better. The shower of His blood is better than the mud And muck of your sin. So, my question to you tonight is will you believe that? Will you pull the cord and be cleansed by Jesus Christ? Will you believe that Jesus Christ is better? Let's pray together. Oh, Jesus, this is a tough text, but it's also really rich. And we need to hear this, Lord God. We need to hear this, Lord. This world isn't moving towards order. It's moving to chaos, spiraling downward, just as each of us are inside, apart from a relationship with you. Jesus, we praise you that you are in control of the chaos. And you will do something one day about all the chaos, Lord. And we just declare, Jesus, you are better. I pray that if there's anyone here tonight who doesn't have a relationship with you, if they are caked in the mud of their sin, I pray that they would realize that tonight the shower of your grace flows freely. May they not take that lightly. May they not wait until the day when you come back because that day will be too late. And the shower of your grace will be shut off for forever. And so while it flows freely with the blood of the Lamb, may people here tonight realize that, receive that, and be cleansed from all their sins. I'm going to pray and then the band's going to lead us in some songs. When I say amen, you're free to go and you're also free to stay in worship. I know some of y'all need to get to other things. You're free to go. You're also free to stay. If you need to talk to someone, pray with someone, if you want to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ, there'll be people at the back. We'd love to talk to you. Any questions, we'd love to answer them. Lord Jesus, we love you. And we sing to you now. We praise you for who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name.